Welcome. Today's message, based on Romans 2, 1 to 11, is called Caught by Conceit, Criticizing Others, Contempt for God. Judgment. It's a valuable skill. To have good judgment is to be better prepared for everyday life. The Bible recommends having good judgment. Psalm 119.66 says, Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I believe in your commands. Proverbs 3.21 My son, preserve sound judgment and discernment. Do not let them out of your sight. Jesus himself tells us in John 7.24, Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Every day we make dozens of decisions that work out better if we exercise good judgment. Take Thursday, for example. In making plans, we begin by finding out certain variables. What's the weather going to be like? Is it cold? Mm, high of nine. What about chance of rain? None in the forecast. Hardly cloudy. Hmm. Is it a good day to take the motorcycle to work? Might be chilly, but I can dress more warmly. Is it safe? Uh, here some of you might question my appraisal. Well, there was that rain a couple of days ago which should have washed off the road somewhat. My judgment gives me green light to take the bike to work. Yes, I did make it there and back safely, an option some of you would likely never have recommended. But it was so spring-like outside. And so our days go, making decisions, judgment calls, most of which pan out, but not always. Good judgment is indispensable and spares us much grief. Psalm 72 is a messianic psalm describing the godly king Israel hoped to see fulfilled one day in the Christ. Psalm 72, 2 and 4. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. The scripture also warns us against exercising judgment in some cases. Take the first few verses of today's lesson, Romans 2, 1 to 3. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? What gives? Is judgment a bad thing or a good and beneficial thing, as we just saw? The word in Greek, krino, means to separate, pick out, approve, determine, be of opinion. It's good to be able to pick out the good from the bad, to differentiate, to make determinations and choices. If we couldn't make distinctions, life would become a hopeless muddle, and we wouldn't be able to make a decision. We'd be paralyzed. Romans 12.2 talks about conforming no longer to this world's pattern, but being transformed by our mind's renewal. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Good judgment is vital for approving God's will. The catch is passing judgment on someone else when we ourselves do the same things. That's called hypocrisy, having a double standard expecting more of another person than we would require of ourselves. Can't we see the irony in that? We make excuses for ourselves about things that we criticize other people about. As the saying goes, there's one finger pointing at them, but three other fingers pointing back at ourselves. The classic verse on judging that you always hear thrown about comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7.1, where Jesus enjoins us, 
Do not judge, or you too will be judged. However, he's obviously not meaning that we should never exercise judgment. In context, it's about passing judgment on others using a double standard, requiring a higher quality from them than we require of ourselves. Matthew 7, 3-5 Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. John Stott comments, This is not a call to suspend our critical faculties or to renounce all criticism and rebuke of others as illegitimate. It is rather a prohibition of standing in judgment on other people and condemning them, which as human beings we have no right to do, especially when we fail to condemn ourselves. For this is the hypocrisy of the double standard, a high standard for other people and a comfortably low one for ourselves. End quote. Note Paul contrasts God's judgment, verse 2, with that of a mere man, verse 3. A good question to ask ourselves whenever we're tempted to pass judgment is, what right have I to express an opinion about this other person's behavior? Mind your boundaries. Uh, Luke 12, 13 to 14, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? That's a very good question to ask. Who made me this person's judge. What's our relationship to them? Of course, it's the job of parents to instruct, correct, and rebuke their children. When John Wesley set up classes in Methodism, it was so the members could exhort and encourage each other and help keep each other on track. Small groups, life groups, should do that, where there's been trust and commitment and solidarity built over time. When we apply to become a member of a church, we're asking to be held accountable. We submit ourselves to certain responsibilities and look to our pastors and elders to help guide us and reinforce good behavior. But too often we're quick to pass judgment on other people when it's simply not our place to do so. Here's a teaching poem that, since it's almost springtime. A little seed lay on the ground and soon began to sprout. Now, which of all the flowers around it mused, shall I come out? The lily's face is fair and proud, but just a trifle cold. The rose, I think, is rather loud, and then its fashion's old. The violet is all very well, but not a flower I'd choose. Nor yet the Canterbury bell, I never cared for blues. And so it criticized each flower, this supercilious seed, until it woke one summer morn and found itself a weed. We can become very weedy in our criticisms. Wouldn't you rather have people think of you as a beautiful flower and want to be around you? And so the church becomes known as a building full of hypocrites, folks who suppose they're a cut above the hoi polloi and jump to call out shortcomings in others while they try to cover up their own less obvious faults. Verse 2, or Romans 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. But our own human judgment is based on limited observation and our own prejudices. It's God who knows the whole story. 
In the end, it's the Lord's divine judgment that will hold all people to account, not your or my policies. Romans 14, 4, 10, and 12. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You then, why do you judge your brother, or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Also, 1 Corinthians 4 or 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. In Romans 1 to 3, you may recall from last week, the Apostle Paul is attempting to show how all people have fallen short and need God's forgiveness. In chapter 1, he describes the Gentile masses, but later in chapter 2, verses 17 on, he turns to the Jews who have the law but still broken. In this in-between passage, he seems to be addressing critical moralizers, Jew or Gentile, who perhaps haven't been swept along by their baser passions, as portrayed in chapter 1, but have been leading a more moral life. Yet, the temptation, if you can say no to the more fleshy appetites, sex, drunkenness, gluttony, to become proud of your accomplishment, pat yourself on the back and congratulate yourself. You're doing so well. You hardly need God. Yet we still do the same things, verses 1 and 3, maybe just not so obviously. We're still comparing ourselves by other people rather than by God's standard. We're guilty of pride, looking down our noses at those struggling. Romans 2, 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Stubborn, unrepentant. I'm good enough without God's help. See also verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Self-seeking, authorized version, contentious, Intriguing for office, the desire to put oneself forward. But if you succeed in living a basically moral life, it's so easy to start to think less of others who don't. We can succeed at self-control in the physical realm only to succumb to pride and conceit and stubbornness, less obvious pitfalls. We judge by appearances because by those standards, we come up looking better than that other bloke who's cheating on his wife. Jesus reserved a whole chapter of rebuke for the hypocrites of his day, the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23:25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Some people are so quick to jump to judgment, they would be negative about anything, even about well-respected church leaders. A man of Italian ancestry had always dreamed of visiting Italy and meeting the Pope. He saved his money and finally had enough to make the trip. Just before he was about to leave, he went to the barber shop to get a haircut. The barber asked, How are you going to Italy? I'm flying Alitalia Airlines, the barber said. Ah, forget it. They've got a terrible reputation. You'll be sorry. Where are you going to stay? The man answered, I'll be staying at the Hilton in Rome. 
the barber groaned, forget it, they've got terrible service. What are you going to do when you're in Rome? The man replied, I'm going to see the Pope. The barber laughed, forget it, you'll never see the Pope, you're a nobody. The Pope only sees important people, you're wasting your time. Several weeks later, the same man went back to the barber shop. The barber said, so I bet you never got to Italy. The man replied, well, as a matter of fact, I did. I flew Alitalia and they were just wonderful to me. When I got to Rome, I stayed at the Hilton and they treated me like a king. What did you do when you got there? The barber asked. I went to see the Pope. Well, the barber said impatiently, what happened? I knelt down and kissed the Pope's ring. Wow, the barber said, you kissed the Pope's ring. What did he say? Well, the Pope looked down at me and said, Son, where did you get that terrible haircut? How we treat our neighbor tells a lot about our attitude toward God. Jesus, in the great command, linked together love for God and love for neighbor as inseparable. Matthew 22, 37-40. The parable of the sheep and the goats, he said, The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. First John 4, we find, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For no anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. There's a mysterious linkage here between how we treat other people and what that reveals about our God-connectedness. An aside. So if the coronavirus opens up an opportunity to serve your neighbors somehow in a way you normally wouldn't, count that as an opportunity to serve the Lord. Back to our passage. Paul asserts that passing judgment on others heaps contempt upon their maker. Romans 2-4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? The Greek word translated contempt can also mean despise, think little or nothing of. So if you look down your nose at others, you're also looking down on, making as if it's nothing, the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. God has put that person there for you to love as a neighbor, not ridicule. God has been merciful and kind toward you. He sent his son to die as an atoning sacrifice so your sins could be forgiven and you put right with God. His kindness, not striking you instantly dead for your sin, is meant to lead you toward repentance, a right about face, a turning away from sin and turning toward Jesus. His patience is to lead you to be reconciled with the Holy One. 2 Corinthians 5.19 God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. When we exercise prejudice based on external factors, hoping to pass judgment without knowing the hopping on to pass judgment without knowing the full story, we're forgetting another of God's qualities, impartiality. Romans 2:11. For God does not show favoritism. The word literally means to take note of face. See also Peter's talk at the Roman centurion's home in Acts 10:34, where he said, 
I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. We see it again in Ephesians 6, 9. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he was both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Quite a radical thought. The power differential between master and slave is swept away in Christ. They are both people worthy of respect and fair treatment. So we need to avoid looking down on others when we and they both will give an account to God. Paul ends this section by setting forth two scenarios when God's righteous judgment is revealed, verse 5. For those who follow evil, verse 8, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. Revelation 20, 11 forward describes what's called the great white throne judgment, verses 13 and 15 say, each person was judged according to what he had done. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But Paul also describes a much better option when God gives to each person according to what he has done, quoting Psalm 62.12 and Proverbs 24.12. Verse 7, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 10, Glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. Note, this is not about salvation, but judgment. We're not saved by good works. Chapter 3, Paul maintains there is no one who does good. But when we recognize this in ourselves and repent and in faith turn to Jesus, he can make us new, give us rebirth, a fresh start in his Holy Spirit. And that spirit stirring in us draws us to seek glory, honor, peace, and immortality, literally incorruption, not subject to decay. When tempted to be critical and pass judgment on someone, turn to the Lord and pray for them instead. John Hyde, 1865-1912, was a missionary to India who became so far famed for his effective and powerful praying that he is known to history as Praying Hyde. He once told of the most salutary lesson the Lord ever taught him about prayer. It occurred while he was praying for a national pastor in India, a man who was both having and causing problems. Hyde began his prayer, O God, thou knowest this brother how, he was going to say cold, and suddenly he was smitten in his spirit. A voice seemed to whisper sharply to him, He that touches him touches the apple of my eye. A great horror swept over Hyde, and he felt he had been guilty before God of accusing the brethren. Falling to his knees, Hyde confessed his own sin, and he remembered the words of Paul that we should think on things that are lovely and good. Father, cried Hyde, show me what things are lovely and of good report in my brother's life. Like a flash, Hyde remembered the many sacrifices this pastor had made for the Lord, how he had given up all for Christ, how he had suffered deeply for Christ. He thought of the many years of difficult labor this man had invested in the kingdom and the wisdom with which he had resolved congregational conflict. I had remembered the man's devotion to his wife and family and how he had provided a model to the Lord, to the church of godly husbanding. John Hyde spent his prayer time that day praising the Lord for this brother's faithfulness. Shortly afterward, 
Ty journeyed into the plains to see this pastor, and he learned that the man had just received a great spiritual uplift, as if a, a personal revival had refreshed his heart like a springtime breeze. While Hyde had been praising, God had been blessing. Let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for not condemning us at, uh, through the cross and through faith, forgiving our sins. Lord, help us to look with such mercy and grace on other people and to refrain from becoming critical moralizers, just to share with them your grace instead and your love and your mercy. We bless you for your goodness and your tolerance, your patience with us. In Christ's name, amen. God bless. See you next week.